Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Friends, this week's episode is from our live show in Indianapolis, Indiana. We had so much fun with our special guest, John Green. If Casper's a little gigglier than usual, it's because we were fighting over flirting with John. <laughs> Shh, don't tell them. <laughs> but all of the usual live show warnings apply. There might be some edits. We'll still take some ad breaks. And there might be a couple of laughs that had visual cues. We hope that you enjoy this last chapter of Book 5 of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Take it away, live Casper. Chapter 38. The Second War Begins. He who must not be named returns. In a brief statement Friday night, Minister of Magic Cornelius Fudge confirmed that he who must not be named has returned to this country and is active once more. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. The Live Show! Hello, Indianapolis! Hi. Okay. Okay, Indiana. Yeah. We'll move here. Done. You convinced us. Thank you so much for coming. This is my first visit to Indianapolis. The previous thing that I knew about Indiana was the giant butter cow. <laughs> that was from West Wing. I don't know if it's real. Is it real? I no. Yeah. We should have workshopped that backstage. <laughs> I am basically from here because in 2003, I drove from St. Louis to Indianapolis to see Ani DeFranco in concert. Wow. So. Do you want to introduce Ariana? Yeah, no, okay, that's fine. <laughs> so you will um, appreciate her more than ever tonight as you hear us unedited. Oh. The great, the talented, the good, Ariana Nettleman. <laughs> oh yeah, and later we'll be joined by John Green. That's true. He's, he's an up-and-coming young author. You know, we really like to give people some exposure uh, as they so join us. So that they can practice. I think he knows the difference between Iowa and Indiana, though. That's true. Um, well, as we, as we do in every show, we start with a little story to introduce our theme. And tonight, Vanessa, you are sharing a story. Me? It is you. Oh, okay. So I am going to tell you a story about the summer that I did clinical pastoral education, which is where you train as a hospital chaplain. I thought I was going to be a hospital chaplain. 
I also thought Trump wouldn't be president. I am a bad predictor of the future. So I decided, I was like, oh, this is going to be the last time that I get to like decide where I'll be for the summer. I'm going to go home to Los Angeles for the summer to do CPE. And I did my CPE at um, Cedar sinai Medical Center, which is in Beverly Hills. And I like go for the first day of orientation, and it's like not just HIPAA like warnings, it's like, you are going to see celebrities. Act cool. <laughs> Don't call the press. But then, of course, it turned out that hospital chaplaincy, even in Beverly Hills, was not as glamorous as I was led to believe. It was a lovely group of people who I was doing it with. I was learning a lot, but I got assigned to an emergency department, and we were a trauma one center. And so it was a lot of gang violence and motorcycle accidents. And then on Wednesdays, I was in an ALS clinic. And this clinic was amazing. Everybody came in all stages of their disease to this clinic. And you could see every doctor and professional, every therapist, every physical therapist, breathing therapist that you needed to see, you stayed in a room the doctor cycled through. And so people would fly from Seattle, from Hawaii to come because you only had to go to the doctor once every three months. It was amazing. And so what I would do is I, I would walk in and I would walk through the waiting room where you saw people just in every stage of this disease, people who you didn't know if they were sick or they were there with someone, to people who couldn't breathe on their own, right? And so I would walk through that, and then immediately I would go back. And then really, what they don't tell you about chaplaincy is that a lot of it is really about loitering. So I would stand in a hallway and wait for doors to be open while people were waiting for their next appointment. And then I would like poke my head in and be like, spiritual care? And like some people would be like, nope, and I'd be like, cool. And then other people would be like, sure. So it was this very strange sort of spiritual care. And one day I was standing in the hallway and I was reading Where'd You Go, Bernadette? And a doctor comes out and says something that doctors very rarely say to chaplains, which is, chaplain, I need you. I ran into this room and this woman was having what I would imagine was a panic attack. And so I grabbed her hand and we made eye contact. And she looked at me and she said, I have two small children. And I said, I know. And then the doctor came back in with a shot of what I imagined was lorazepam or something, and I left the room. And it was only when I left the room that, right, like, it all clicked into place. I was like, She's, she saw that waiting room. Like, she saw her future. And her first thought was not... I'm not going to be able to breathe by myself one day. It was, my kids are going to have to see me not be able to breathe one day. And that kind of love, it was just the most eye-opening kind of love. And it is the kind of love that we see all over the Harry Potter books, right? That is Lily's love that saves Harry. That is Harry's love for Sirius that gets him to go to the ministry. It is destructive love, and it is also life-saving love. And so I'm excited to talk more about that with you tonight. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you. But before we do that, there's a little something we like to call the 30-second recap. So, Ariana, do you want to introduce the 30-second recap? Yes, absolutely. So, 30-second recap, we do it all the time. We do it in the studio. 
where it gets a little bit competitive, but we don't really know who the winner is. Like, I get to arbitrarily assign the winner every week. But here in person, with all of you, we have a little bit more of a methodology to really figure out who is the true 30-second recap champion. And then we'll publish our peer-reviewed article about... <laughs> that sound good to everybody? Yeah. Okay. We didn't make a like pun on our theme transition. Would you love to go first at the 30-second recap? Okay, I just like feel like I had to do that. Okay. We do it literally every week, and Ariana will cut them out most of the time, but <laughs> you know every theme has found a way into the 30-second recap. Are you attracted to the 30-second recap? I really think I'm gonna get revenge for you. The lucky thing is we're actually recording tonight, so I can cut it out in the end anyway. Oh, damn it. Damn it. See, she seems nice. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'm ready. I'm rooting for you. On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay, so we're in the hospital wing. Harry's recovering. Hermione's recovering. Ron's recovering. Everyone's like, oh, eating chocolate frogs because the twins sent it to them. Great. Then Harry's like, I need to go. Goes to Hagrid. I need to go. Goes to be on his own. Hangs around, like, wondering what to do. Um, uh, oh, God. Um, and then, then um, he, like, uh, walks around, and there is Malfoy. And Malfoy is wonderful, but not in this moment. And um, it's like, what? I'm going to get you back for what you did to my dad. McGonagall rescues him, and then um, goes on a train and everything's good. I loved that recap. <laughs> All right, Vanessa, let's hear what you've got. Okay. Three, two, one, go. So after he comes back from Hagrid's hut, I think you did till that point very well, or what happens, McGonagall is back and she gives points to everybody, including Luna, which she's like weird about. Um, and they have a confrontation with Snape and then she's like, Crab and Goyle carrying my things. And then um, Harry has this really intense conversation with Luna about loss. He thinks that maybe he can see Sirius in the mirror and it's very, very sad. And then um, they turn Malfoy, Crab and Goyle into slugs. And then at the very end, everybody defends Harry and is like, you better be nice to him, Dursley. That's why there's two of us. <laughs> Before we move on, is there anything you know that you missed from the chapter? Mm. Yeah. Oh, uh, Umbridge is like in the hospital wing. Yeah, and she sneaks out and Peeves, well, she tries to sneak out and Peeves follows her with her. the cane and the yeah. chalk. Flitwick has made a monument to the twins with a puddle. Ginny's dating Dean Thomas. Big news. Yeah. <laughs> Big news. <laughs> Harry's also totally over Cho. Nearly, there's this like beautiful moment between Harry and nearly headless Nick that's like awkward. Let's not tokenize ghosts, you know? <laughs> like it's not Nick's responsibility to explain death to everyone. <laughs> like, anyway. Right, yeah. let's move on. Okay. We are very excited to welcome tonight the creator of our favorite podcast, The Anthropocene Reviewed. A really big fan of Wimbledon soccer, which is a sport. The great John Green. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely welcome. Okay, I've got a question for you all to start our theme conversation. I feel like Barbara Walters. Hello. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay, my question is, we see a lot of people try and take care of Harry in this chapter in the face of his grief and 
some people are more successful than others. And I'm wondering where you see this happening and if there's anything we can learn about loving people in hard times from this chapter. And John, we'll start with you. Well, I, I guess I'd start with Luna. I think Luna, there's a lot of people who love Harry well in this chapter, but I love the way Luna loves Harry uh, because sometimes you need to meet people where they are and not try to make it better or not try to minimize their pain. Uh, there's that great Leonard Cohen line, there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in, to let the places where there are cracks in you and the light gets out, to let yourself be that in front of someone. And, and I think Luna's generosity to Harry in that moment is talking about her mom and talking about her loss and when other people might have said like you know and that was my mom and this is just your godfather like Luna doesn't do that she doesn't minimize that in any way and I love the way that she loves him there. I also love that in that moment obviously Luna's a few years away from her mother's death but in that moment she's still lost things right she's literally putting up posters around Hogwarts like for missing items from her life and so it struck me that there was something, it was an unequal relationship of like, let me come and help you or make you feel better. It was just right. like, yeah, we're both in this and obviously it's different for you and it's different for me, but both of us are, are struggling in this moment, which just makes it feel, I don't know, safer in some way. And Luna is talking to him. She gives him a moment of normalcy first. She's not like, hey, how are you feeling about the death? She's like, hey, I'm hanging up these posters. People take things, right? And she, she gives him a moment to feel like himself again, where he's like, oh, I'm, I like being the hero. I can offer to help. And creates even space for that. Yeah, part of what I think we do sometimes with people who are experiencing a lot of grief or people who are going through a really difficult time is by jumping to it immediately, we define them by their grief or we define them by the struggle. And that can be really exhausting when you are that person, when you want to be like, yes, it's true. This terrible thing did happen to me. Also, I am not entirely that. Right, I'm also somebody who wants to help you find your things. Right, yeah, like can we have a, a like semi-normal conversation for five seconds? Right, so now I'm going to make it weird now that you said can we have a semi-normal conversation for five <laughs> seconds. Yeah, right. get weird. So the line that I don't like that Luna says is she says, it's okay, they always come back to me in the end, right? About her stuff. And I hate it when people say things like that to grieving people. Like, he's just lost something forever. Sirius is not coming back in the end. And actually, for a long time, people would ask me what, what it meant to be an atheist chaplain and why I am an atheist chaplain. And I would hem and haw and quote philosophers that I have only read the Wikipedia pages for. And, <laughs> and then one day, my friend Mike called me, and he's an Episcopal priest, and he called me and said, my mom was just diagnosed with cancer today, and she only has a few weeks to live. And everybody is telling me she's going to a better place. And I believe that's true. But I need to talk to my atheist friend because I don't want to talk about that right now. I just want to talk about the fact that she's dying and it sucks. And that's when I realized what my calling was, right? I was like, okay, that's my job is to meet people there. And I, I love Luna's <laughs> ethereal quality. But I'm also like, your it's shoes are coming back. She's yeah, overpromising. She's overpromising. Yeah. I hear you. When I was a chaplain... I mean, I was a... 
terrible, terrible chaplain. But when I was a chaplain, I remember my chaplaincy supervisor said, now there are Easter Christians and there are Good Friday Christians. And I think you are a bit of a Good Friday Christian. <laughs> and I like, at first I was kind of hurt and then I thought more about it and I was like, I do like a Good Friday service. <laughs> Yeah. I do like to weep and get down on my knees and kiss the cross and like, yes. And then Easter comes along and I'm like, yeah, you know, that's nice. <laughs> See, Chocolate. I, I just want the pretty flowers on the Easter Sunday. I'm oh, that's the like other thing. That's the, I, 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 yeah. yeah, to me, it's just like the start of pollen season, you know? <laughs> but so here's, the, here's what I do love that Luna says is she shares that her mother died. Yeah. And then Harry has this awkward, I'm sorry, Harry mumbled. And then she says this, yes, it was rather horrible, said Luna conversationally. I still feel very sad about it sometimes, but I've still got dad. And then, okay, then she goes to your category of, and anyway, it's not as though I'll never see mum again, is it? Now, what, what I love is that she's in some way modeling what life after loss can look like for Harry in the sense that she's, she acknowledges like, yes, there are times when I feel really sad. Yes, it was really horrible. And, like, I'm living my life day to day, and I'm doing okay. You know, I'm, I'm doing okay. And there, there's an orientation of hers which allows for that unknown and mystery. Now, we can disagree about what we think that unknown is, but I really respect, I respect what she's saying. I guess my question is, is she loving Harry in this moment, or is she just being Luna, which is lovely. That's why he feels safe with her. Okay. Is that no one is trying to fix him. Like or love at him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because that's what Hagrid does, right? Hagrid asks this question of like, how are you doing? And, ha and Harry literally says like, and he knew he didn't mean just physically, right? Like Hagrid really cares about him and wants to know how he's doing, but it feels invasive to Harry. And so I think there's something, I don't know, you could call it just like holding space maybe, or you yeah, could, yeah, yeah. right? Luna is just herself and Harry can just be there. I, I think that's, has anyone had this feeling like once you've left home and then you come back home to visit your family, whom you love, but also, <laughs> um, I, I think I've talked about this before. I had one of those moments in August and I like literally just had to go for a really, really long walk. And I just sat down somewhere under a tree and I like had a good cry and journaled a lot and ate a lot of chocolate. It was awesome. Um, I was in this place and I feel like that's what Luna is. Like she's just this landscape in which Harry can just, you know. And so maybe sometimes it's easier to talk to a stranger than it is a really good friend, right? Like maybe it's the absence of love that makes this the right person to talk to for Harry. There is definitely something to that. It can be really hard to talk to people you love when you are in pain because they want so badly to take it away from you and they can't and that makes you feel worse because now you're making them feel bad and yeah, that's hard. Yeah, and then you have to take care of them when you're the one in pain. Yeah. You're like, yeah. don't worry about it. I'll cook you a dinner. Look at me. <laughs> and the, the really beautiful loving moment to me that is Luna just loving in the way that she is in the world, she's like, yes, people bully me and steal my things, but they always return them, right? Which I think is just a very faithful, loving outlook on the world. The world's not hateful. My stuff is gonna come back. I hope that's true. Do we think her stuff actually gets returned to her? I think that she is able to construct a world in which it does, you know? <laughs> and that's like one of the things I really like about Luna Lovegood. It's like probably doesn't matter, you know? <laughs> She's probably good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the only other thing I would add is that 
Casper's point about Luna having her own pain in this moment, like, Harry tries to fix it in the way that everybody's trying to fix yeah. his grief. And he's like, okay, I'm going to step up. I'm going to help you find the things. And she says very kindly, you can't fix it. It will just happen as it will happen. And, like, I think that's also a nice metaphor for, like, what needs to happen with him and how people meet him in his grief. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I'm wondering if there is another place that you want to go to and people taking care of Harry, or if you want to get, I can give you another place to go to. Um, I really like at the very end where he has like a posse, you know, like <laughs> finally somebody saying to the Dursleys like, no more. And it makes me wonder a little bit why like maybe Dumbledore didn't do that at some point or like, I mean, we've had, we've had like 15, 16 years of this business, but I just love that they're like no more. And that feel like I was pretty like surprisingly like a pretty nerdy kid and like I really struggled in in middle school especially like I got beat up a lot and I got it wasn't even like that they would physically hurt me to like hurt me it was like they would physically hurt me to humiliate me and that's very effective you know like they'd put me in a trash can or stuff like that that's just like it's physical but it's not like you don't have to go to the hospital you just feel very small and um I went to a boarding school in Alabama, and there was this couch that only seniors could sit on. It was like this stupid long-term tradition, and you, you, only seniors could sit on the couch. It was outside of the senior wing. It was yellow and very bright. And I had been bullied when I first arrived at the school, and by the time that I was a senior, not just me, but a lot of my friends as well were like, this is over. Like, this is so lame. It's so lame to, like, bully people when they come to school. Like, it's just, it doesn't, it's not nice. So that was kind of our policy. One day I come back from class and there's this little eighth grade kid. He's like 12 or 13 years old. His name was Cooter. I don't know if that was his given name, but that was the name that he, he went by. And I mean, he was tiny, you know, he weighed like 65 pounds, tiny little baby child. And um, I said, Cooter, I don't want to make a big deal out of this. No way you could have known, but it's actually a couch that only seniors can sit on. It's just this stupid old tradition, but it's very important to people, and you should probably just get off the couch. And he was like, you going to make me? And I was like, ah, no, I mean, no, I'm not going to make you get off the couch, but, like, other people are coming, you know, other seniors, and it's just going to become a... There's no reason for it to become a thing. Like, you will sit on this couch when you're a senior, and it'll feel so good, and, but until then, you have to get off the couch. And by then, like, my friends had started to come up, like, fellow seniors. And so finally, like, I reached my hand down, you know, to take Cooter's hand to lift him off the couch. No, no, no violence, you know, I, I, I didn't intend him ill. And he jumped up and he just beat the crap out of me. Like, uh, I've never been set on like this in my life. Like, a flurry of punches to the face, down on the ground, confused, no idea what's happening. This kid could fight, like, fight, like, he could be a professional MMA fighter. So finally, all these seniors like dragged this, you know, 12-year-old boy off of me who's just completely destroyed me. And like my glasses are like half broken and I like reach up and I put my glasses on and I, and I sit up. And this is the moment in every other time when this has happened to me in my life when everybody laughs at me and that makes you feel like even smaller. And I was like, I can't believe I'm 17 years old and I'm going to feel this horrible feeling again. But instead, like Cooter walks off and one guy who I wasn't even really friends with said, man, that kid is strong. <laughs> And then another guy was like, yeah, I mean, I think any of us would have gotten beat up in that situation. And I was like, I'm loved. I'm loved at last. 
So it's not like a perfect analog. <laughs> it's pretty close. But it's a wonderful feeling, you know, like when uh, Tonks and Lupin finally love you and don't laugh at your pain. Uh, I, do you think Cooter is like, I am like the Dursleys? <laughs> if he's listening no, I right mean, now. No, oh, he, he might be listening. And I, I actually like, because of Facebook, I know he's doing great. Um, so... Everything worked out like, yeah, having that like strong sense of self at 12 translated to adult success. He no longer goes by Cooter though, so you can't, thankfully you can't like send him a Facebook message and tell him to listen to the pod. Well, that's one listener we won't get. Okay. (laughs) But there is something about what I love about your story, John, and what we see at the end of this chapter is that this love is no longer a one-to-one thing, right? This is the love of a community. It's yeah. the protection of a, of a group of people that Harry feels surrounded, right? Like you were saying, oh, I have people. I don't know. I just feel like it's a clarion call for community love, really, more than anything that we see in this chapter. I completely agree. And Harry has matured so much throughout this book. And I wonder if it's because he now has this leadership role in the DA and has more of a sense of identity. In the beginning of the book, he he's caps lock, Harry, right? He's yelling... But there's some self-awareness towards the end, right? He was like, when he's in the hospital wing and he's starting to get angry, he's like, okay, I think I'm going to go on a walk down to Hagrid's. And then he goes to Hagrid's and he's like, "Mm, this isn't doing it, and like politely exits. And he's not doing the hurt people, hurt people thing. He's doing, they're trying to love me, they're doing it wrong, but like you just see such growth in him. And I think it is because of the community love. I think people have loved him so well throughout this book it has changed him. And I love that it happens in a moment where he's going to what is supposed to be home, right? Like we're all going home at the end of our year at Hogwarts, but Harry's home has always been less home than Hogwarts has been. And so it's these people who are in his community who are going and saying like, he is with us now and you will make that home a safe place for him. And that's what home is really. Like home is those people who love you. Like there's a great Kurt Vonnegut line. He said once at the end of his life, I've thought about what home is. I'm going to butcher the quote, of course. Home is, uh, is Indianapolis when I was nine years old and I have a mother and a father and I have aunts and uncles and I have cousins and I'm surrounded by people who love me and I have a cat and a dog and I can't get back to there. And I think part of what these people who love Harry are doing is they are saying, like, the sense of home that you have here, we will try our best to, like, give you as you go to this place that is, you know, full of demons and horrors. And what a beautiful space of a gesture, right? They are right outside of platform nine and three quarters. They are back in the muggle world. And they are saying, even here, the fact that you have a chosen family matters and can travel with you. Right. Right. And they are like literally in this in-between space. And they're like, even here, we love you and you have people. Yeah, the home is going with you. Yeah. I love that concept of the in-between because I feel like there's so much in-betweenness in this chapter. There's like Nick who's in between life and death. There's Harry who's constantly saying, I don't know if I want to be with people or not with people. I don't know if I want to talk about Sirius or not talk about Sirius. It's all about like this liminal space that you're calling to. I'm just suddenly seeing the connection. Obviously, we've just lost Sirius through the veil, right? Across this physical marker of here and not here. And here we are coming from the platform 
going through this wall to be here and not here. And so Harry's own experience of like, I mean, it's kind of a death that he has to suffer every time that he exits the magical world to go back to the Dursleys. And it's, I think that Harry's sitting on the Hogwarts Express for that extra minute and being like, if I could just stay here, is similar to how Nick felt when he decided to stay a ghost, right? He was like, I'm scared to die. And so he stayed a ghost. And I think that Harry would have an equally miserable experience if he just stayed on the Hogwarts Which Express. we're going to see in the next book. I mean, literally, he's going to be invisible and unable to get yeah. off the train. And that's not a happy place to be. No, right. Yeah. The last thing I'll say on this question of how people meet him in his grief is I, and what I'm hearing you say is that like people are having a hard time talking to him about Sirius, but the places that they succeed are the places where they can love him in ways that aren't about Sirius, where they love him about his relationship with the Dursleys, they love him in his desire to help, or they love him, McGonagall loves him in his like Gryffindor pride and gives him house points. And I think, you know, like Harry's not ready to talk about Sirius yet, but he, he can accept that kind of love. And they can't fix the Sirius thing, right? right? They can't. Because and it's pretty serious. You can, you can boo him. It's how he'll learn. <laughs> Otherwise, he won't learn. Um, but you can't, right? All you can do is keep people company. I don't like to brag about Judaism, but we do death real well. Like, we just, you know, Shiva, one of the rituals around Shiva, which is the seven-day grieving ritual in Judaism, is that there's a hierarchy of grievers in Shiva and, and whoever sort of the highest of the hierarchy is the spouse, the children, parents, whatever they want to talk about, it is everybody's job to talk about it. And if they don't want to talk, it is everybody's job to stay silent. If they want to tell the same story again and again about the death, you just do that. And, but Harry doesn't know what he wants, right? Harry's like, I just want to keep, I feel like he just wants to keep walking. John, you looked like you had something to say. No? No, I like that, though. It's sad. Cool. That's why you don't have me that regularly as a guest. <laughs> Just say, say what everything makes me feel at the end of each story. That's sad. Sad. I believe it's time for part day. Yes, it is time for our first spiritual practice. So tonight, for our first spiritual practice, we are going to do Pardes. And Pardes is a four-step Jewish reading practice. And we're going to need your help several times during this Pardes. But first, you're going to help us pick our sentence. And Casper, what page numbers? Uh, a number between uh, 745 to 766. 745, so between 45 and 66. Mm, 61. 61. That was the right answer. How did you know? Okay, 61. Amazing. And how many paragraphs are there on the page? 1 through 12. 7. Okay, we did it, team. We did it together. The sentence we have for our close reading this evening is this. Are you sure you don't want me to help you look for your stuff? He said. Ooh. Oh, that's very different from my page 861. Casper has the British edition. Wait, let's see if we like let's see if we like John's better. Then we can vote. John, what's yours? I mean, 
Mine's pretty good, but it's almost too good. Because uh, if, if it's too good, then the spiritual practice is ruined because anybody could get meaning from this sentence. And so strong was his belief that Harry actually turned his head to check the door, sure for a split second that he was going to see Sirius, pearly white and transparent but beaming, walking through it toward him. Can I make a suggestion? Let's do that one, but a, like a five-word chunk of it. Pearly white. Uh, pearly white and transparent, but beaming. Pearly white and transparent, but beaming. So pardes means orchard. And the idea is that the text is like an orchard, and we can stick our hand in the text and pull out any piece of fruit, and it will be nourishing and delicious. It is an orchard with no sour fruit. It's incredible. Okay, and this, this is the piece of fruit that we grabbed, and I'm going to make you say it a million times because I have no short-term memory. Great. But, so for pshat, we ask ourselves what the intended meaning of the sentence is. Can you read it one more time, please? Pearly white and transparent, but beaming. Okay, so Casper, do you want to tell us what the intended meaning of this snippet is? Now I'm confused. Is it about his teeth? No. Uh, <laughs> is, is it the mirror or is it his smile? It's when he's talking to Nearly Headless Nick. Oh, he's hoping. ghost. I thought this was Sirius. Okay. He's no, he hoping... is. He's hoping that Sirius will come like to him as a, a ghost. ghost. Yeah. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Yeah. John, can you please do the shot? Tell us the intended meaning of the sentence. John. I think it's about the idea that Sirius will somehow have survived death and still be available to Harry and that he will be transparent, which is a bummer, but he will be smiling, which is great. And there. And present, which is, yeah, the thing that we most want from the dead. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the second step of Pardes is remez. And during remez, the way that we do it and the way that many rabbis have done it before us is that we pick one word and we trace that word throughout the seven books. And we think of all the different places where we've heard that word. And then we infuse the sentence with all of the meaning of all the different ways that that word has meant things. And so I would love your help. What word do you think we should do? Pearly, white, but transparent... And transparent, but beaming. Transparent. Casper just said no. Beaming. Beaming. I also like beaming. Okay, beaming. I like beaming because I can think of specific... I mean, whoever wrote this book, (laughs) there's a few few words that they love. One of them is that people's faces turn red when embarrassed. Like, there are so many different kinds of red in in this... book because of that. But beaming is another one. People beam constantly. Tell me about some of them. They, it's, it's this, I think it's because it's this idea that like they're smiling, but they're also like giving out this positive energy, almost like a wizard-like power of like being able to like spread that good cheer. Right. So like Lily, um, Sirius Lupin, and James, when they're walking with Harry through the forest, they're beaming at him. That's right. one moment of beaming. Where else... Mirror of Erised, who's beaming in the... His parents are beaming at him in the Mirror of Erised. Great. When is Hagrid beaming? (laughs) Is is that because he's drunk? (laughs) No? Okay. The Patronus... Is the Patronus beaming? Well, it's... It starts out as a beam of light. Okay, I'll give it to (laughs) you. 
Oh, Dumbledore is beaming in King's Cross Station. So there is this kind of loving... Vanessa, do you not like that part? What? Did you, the way you were just like, oh, right, right, right. Is, is that just, how I came across? Yeah, a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. Wow. Would that be the Saturday between Good Friday? I know you don't like life after death, so I get, I get it, man. I get it. I get it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that. Oh, right. Oh, God, I got to talk about that in two years. Great. It's true. I love yeah. the chapter where Harry's walking to his own death in that scene with Dumbledore. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a cliche of myself. Okay, so beaming is about radiating light and love, right? And even the Patronus, which beams, you have to think of something happy in order to get a Patronus. I also think of like beaming with pride, right? The way that McGonagall might look at Harry, the way that Ron looks at Harry when he comes back from one of his many, you know, Voldemort encounters. The way that Ron looks at himself after he plays Quidditch well. So now, how do we make meaning of this? John, do you mind either reciting from memory? Now, or... John, you close the book. You can't do that during a spiritual practice. This is a text that is sacred. That's why they kicked me out of divinity school. <laughs> Pearly white and transparent, but beaming. I mean, Harry is sort of used to only seeing things beaming at him that are dead. Sorry. Okay, Molly beams at Harry. Thank you. But you're right. Everybody else who beams at Harry is doomed. <laughs> but Wait, no. But are you mocking me? But really, it's like his parents in the Mirror of Erised, his parents in Lupin and Sirius in the Forest, Dumbledore. A lot of your examples, <laughs> the people are already dead. He's used... I didn't write it. Let's, it's interesting because it's but beaming. So that first half of the sentence has a number of things to say, right? Transparent, yep. white, what else? Pearly. Pearly. So there's, there's something about beaming which is full of color, which is full of, which is real, which is, right? It's not transparent. It's not luminous. It's, it, there's something very solid to the beamingness. So I think maybe Mrs. Weasley is the best example because she is this very physically present, right? She's always hugging. She's always protecting, making food, right? There's a very, there's a very physicality to, to Mrs. Weasley. I'm getting the sense that this beaming is like very full of earthness. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're, they're dead, but they're back. I also think a lot of the examples that came up were about pride, about beaming with pride. And I never read Sirius as beaming with pride in that moment. I just thought, like, I'm so happy that I'm alive. And isn't the afterlife great? Um, that, like, Harry was trying to imagine him happy. But, like, it's also sweet to imagine that Harry is imagining Sirius proud of him mm-hmm for facing Voldemort again, or for any of the things that have just happened. And I think Harry is right, that Sirius not only would be proud of him for all of that, but that Sirius would be happy to be looking at Harry. Mm-hmm. Like, I think Sirius has that kind of love I described in my story, those eyeballs that can't get enough of staring at someone they love, right? That fierce, right? Sirius loves Harry like that, in part because he looks so much like James. But I do think that if Sirius came back, he would be beaming. Yeah, and it's, like, mischievous to come back from the dead in the way that, like, Sirius escapes from, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's I did it. About Sirius, like, always getting out of things, always, yeah. 
going out as a dog when he's not supposed to. Like, it embodies that mischievousness. Yeah. Well, that leads beautifully to our next step, which is drosh. And drosh is where we ask ourselves if this was our piece of liturgy that we were given on a Friday night or on a Sunday morning and we had to preach on it, what lesson would we want to preach from this piece of text? John, do you mind reading it one more time, please? Pearly white and transparent, but beaming. Who wants to go first? I mean, that's why I didn't become a minister. Yeah. (laughs) Pearly white. Yeah, but you write books and talk for a living, John. (laughs) I guess if if you were like, write a sermon about these six words, I would turn myself to the ways that that love survives death and 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 I don't think it's any comfort in the end I don't I don't I don't mean this in any way to minimize the loss of of human life but as long as either of you are alive that love is real you know like as long as uh one person of a from a loving relationship is alive like the the love has survived and that they are still beaming toward us in some in some way if only from the love that they gave us while they were here. I can't hear the word white without hearing something around race and racism. And in this line, I'm I'm just really struck by that, the thinness of this whiteness. You know, in America and white culture, majority culture, there's, there, there is a thinness to it. And I think there's this grasping for authenticity. There's a grasping for like real culture or like something that is beaming, something that is full of life. And just by a process of assimilation and white supremacy, like generations of immigrants and, and like I've done it. I changed the way I say my last name. Because in Dutch, it's Terkaule, but people really struggle with that. So I say Terkaule. And so I think about that and I'm like, damn it, am I just doing the same thing where I'm making invisible the history and the heritage and the peoplehood where I come from? And, and that's what I mean by the thinness. There's like an ahistorical fakeness about whiteness, which is just not true. And so I, I think I'd want to dig into that in some way if, if I was preaching about the, the way in which we have... We are taught to forget where we come from if we're white in America. And so the the pearly and white made me think of monuments, right, of who we build our statues to and what we do when we see these statues. And I think, like, statues well-built, like, well-conceived of, and often they are beaming, right? And they make us want to live up to their legacy, which is... That is a form of afterlife that I believe in, right? That somebody can leave a legacy behind, that it's like, well, I want to I do you proud. And so even once they're in marble, whether that's in our heads or in our hearts or in a museum, that feeling of they are marble, they are pearly, but they are, they are still expecting things of us and we still owe them things, I think is what I would preach on. Vanessa, did you know that Indianapolis is the monument city? John, I did not. We have more monuments and statues than any city in the United States except for Washington, D.C., which is not technically a city. Okay, Indianapolis. Sure, who are they to? Like having a lot. Oh, yeah, lots of... 
lots of good people. What most of them, most of them are like monuments to the dead. So like overarching groups of people, which I quite like. I quite like the uh, the one in the middle. Uh, That's a technical term. Yes, they all knew immediately what I meant uh, because it's just a monument to all the war dead. Like just period. It's this, what's it called? The Soldiers and Sailors. It's called the Soldiers and Sailors Monument. Thank you. Now I will remember that for the rest of my life. Also, Ariana will edit it to make it sound like you always knew. <laughs> Here, I'll just do it now. Um, that reminds me of the Soldiers and Sailors Monument. <laughs> center of the circle in downtown Indianapolis. So the last step of Pardes <laughs> is sewed. And sewed means secret. And the idea is that these texts hold secrets for us. And it is by far the most mystical practice that we engage in in the podcast. And our mentor, Stephanie Paulsell, who she like is the inventor of supportive. Like no matter what you do, she's like, yes, you're perfect. And then I said to her once backstage of a show, I was like, I, I don't feel like we've nailed sewed yet. And she went, no, you haven't. Um, <laughs> But here's the thing. I still think it's important to do, even though we're bad at it. Because I love, like, I am a dead-inside atheist. And I love the idea of creating just a little bit of space for the possibility of a mystical moment. Right? Like, maybe... <laughs> they're clapping for my dead-inside atheism. Um, and so that's what we're going we're gonna to do together. We're going to sit in silence for a little bit. Ariana will play some beautiful music for us. And we will just sit and leave open the possibility that a secret emerges for us. And we don't ever find it. It arrives. It arrives. Sometimes one day, maybe. Can you read it one more time, John? Pearly white and transparent but beaming. This is, this is what occurred to me. Um, so I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts on the flight over here. And this guy, John Green, was talking about velociraptors, right? And told a story about fossils. And we, we know so much because of these like pearly white fossils. We have access to all of this information. And not just because of the pearly white fossils, but because of the scientists who spend so much time treating those things as sacred and making meaning out of the things. And so I, I don't believe in an afterlife. I think that often the afterlife is a tool of oppression used to keep people who are suffering in their place um, with false promises. But I do believe that we can make meaning of the fossils. And so that was the sowed that arrived for me with the help of that weird podcast. It's weird. I didn't know you didn't believe in the afterlife until just now. <laughs> I thought I would throw it in there as a curveball. Do you have a t-shirt that you ever that you wear? <laughs> I thought about the beam inside of beaming. I thought about that line from uh, the Gospels that I will misquote about... Uh, noticing, what is it, noticing the mode of dust in someone else's eye and not noticing the plank or, or beam that's in your own. Um, and how uh, that is a very difficult thing for me to do 
in 2019. It's very difficult for me to pay attention to the, uh, the plank or the beam in my eye when I look out and I see much, much to criticize. But uh, yeah, it made me want to kind of turn inward and pay attention to that. My husband is a garden designer, and so he spends a lot of time hunched over his kind of, you know, slanted desk drawing, like, plans. And a key element to do plans is this kind of translucent, transparent paper. And so I was suddenly thinking about the, the possibility of that transparentness, like the possibility of the veil, the possibility of the wall between the station and the platform, and just... That, that we get, we see something through the transparency and we also don't quite see it. And the point of the transparent paper is that you can create something new on it. And so I'm, I'm just thinking, I guess my sode was that, you know, in moments when we half see something and we half don't see it, it's also an invitation to make something entirely new. Well... Thank you to all of you for doing Pardes with us. And thank you so much, John Green. Thank you, John. Oh, thank you. It's a great pleasure night. to be here. So, friends, we're going to do our second uh, sacred reading practice, and we're going to do Florilegia. Um, so, for those of you who are not yet familiar with this, this is a, a, an old Christian practice of taking little bits of text, not just one, but two or more, and putting them into conversation with one another. And so traditionally, this might have been done around particular theological ideas or themes from the Bible, or it might have been, especially uh, monks would take little snippets of the Psalms and turn, you know, all of these different snippets into a new text, just like a, a quotes collection. And so Vanessa and I have both chosen a sparklet. We don't know what the other one chose. Vanessa, can you read the quote that you chose? Yeah, I like didn't do it as a joke. <laughs> it must be either murderer or victim. And I chose, I must have been dreaming. So Vanessa, can you, can you tell us where your, where your sparklet comes from and, and why you chose it? So this is, this is the prophecy, right? This is what Harry has learned. <laughs> and um, like to be in this world is to be destructive, right? Is to like use carbon and is to be part of destroying it. And to be born is to be part of dying. And, and so, yes, this is Harry's prophecy. I'm going st to stop like shrinking from the fact that I chose this. I chose this quote. It's not just Harry's prophecy. It's like all of our prophecies, right? We are, that is what it is to be alive, and that is why being alive is hard. And being alive is amazing and beautiful and all the good things, right? And it's spring in Indianapolis, and we're here with you, and life is good. But the human condition sucks, and like there it is. What's yours, and why did you pick yours? So I chose I Must Have Been Dreaming, which is from right up front in the chapter when Umbridge is in the hospital bed. And Ron, I think, makes this, like, fake kind of clock clopping sound to remind her of Firenze uh, and the other centaurs. And so she kind of, like, sits bolt upright in, in her hospital bed. And someone asks her, what's wrong? Madame Pomfrey does. And she said, I must have been dreaming. And what I liked about it is that dreams are such a central element especially of this book right harry all the time goes to sleep and his mind is actually controlled by voldemort and he has these dreams and yet here we have someone saying i must have been dreaming who i had never thought about umbridge's dreams uh, to me it just opened up an interior world 
for umbrage, which I'd, which I'd never thought about. So I'm interested to see what will happen next when we put these two quotes together and read them as if they are one text. So here we go. It must be either murderer or victim. I must have been dreaming. Ooh. So the thing that immediately strikes me is that the second one kind of invalidates the first one, that there's something about the binary concreteness of you have to be A or B that is then complicated or mystified by this idea of, well, if, if that was true, I must have been dreaming. I don't know. That's, do you yeah. know what I mean? Oh, totally. Yeah. And yeah, like I do think that's sort of the human condition, but not literally, right? Like that's a very extreme version of the human condition. I, I thought of, as many of you know who listen to the podcast, I had two surgeries last year, and so I'm st- I still take medication at night that gives me the weirdest, most violent oh. dreams. And just, like, I wake up crying. Anyway, so often in my dreams these days, I am either murderer or victim, <laughs> and it's terrifying. The, the plus side of it is that it then makes me text whoever I've murdered in my dream. And so I'm back in touch with some old friends. I'm like, Colette, I killed you in my dream last night. How are you? I think it must mean I miss you. Because that's the only thing I've got. That is what it reminded me of. I'm sorry. I love that. (laughs) So let's see what happens when we flip it the other way and if there's other intricacies that are revealed. So let's read it this way around. I must have been dreaming. It must be either murderer or victim. I must have been dreaming. It must be either murderer or victim. Does anybody want to help us? Not that I have a reading. I just had something I wanted you to talk about, which is the fact that you both picked must sentences. Of all the sentences in the chapter, you both picked ones that start with it must and I must. Can you, so can you talk about things that it must be, things that are inevitable, like what the quality of that word is? Right. And, and it's not true in either cases, which is something that we just talked about, right? Like with always and never. Like she isn't dreaming. Ron really did re-traumatize her. And for most of us, it's, it's not true that we must be either murderer or victim, including for Harry. There is somebody so emphatically in the very back row raising their hand. Yes. Ken Rosenberg, for those of you listening at home, um, had a beautiful interpretation of this florilegia, which is that Harry must have been dreaming to think that he was going to be able to get out of this relationship with Voldemort without either being the murderer or the victim. And we all do that, right? We're like, it's just this, like, of course it was inevitable that this will happen. I don't know why I didn't see it. Do you have anything yeah, I, I'm going to go back to the mustness. Just that word must is so interesting to me because, and I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, that wonderful list of like 10 mistakes your brain does, which is not helping you right now. 10 ways to untwist your thinking. That's the one. There's all these different things that our brains do where sometimes you can stop that pattern. And the word must for me is so strong in that way that it, it right, she must have been thinking this or if that happens, I must do this. And we limit, we massively narrow what options are actually available to us. And so I'm, I'm connecting back to that transparent piece of paper where like new options become possible. Yeah. Um, like the word must is, I think it's the trick 
that this whole ending of book five is based on, right? Like Harry has something happen where he feels like, oh, I must do this. And there's all these people trying to interrupt that line of thinking, Hermione especially. And he ends up, of course, putting himself ultimately in a situation which he deeply, deeply regrets. And so I'm walking away from this reading of a deep suspicion of that word must. Yeah. I was also just reminded that this um, murderer or victim in this context is a false distinction, right? Harry doesn't want to be a murderer. And so like he's a victim of that too, right? Like that that's not a real distinction here. The or mm-hmm. really spoke to me also. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, and both and. So can oh, I yeah. say one more thing, which is that this is reminding me of the conversation you were having with John about grief becoming your whole self and that mm. you being more than your grief and like seeing Harry think about himself as murderer or victim, right? Those are identities that become everything that you are. Um, And I'm thinking about that in relation to dreaming as well as like, I must have been dreaming. It's about a diminishment of self. It's like I, what I thought was real wasn't real, that both of these are about diminishing oneself and that what you've been saying now is like that that neither of those are true, that we are all more than our grief. We are all more than Mm -hmm. our label. We are all, all more than what we thought wasn't true in our dreams. And the other thing I want to say, because this is feedback I've gotten recently from people who've experienced great loss, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but, you know, it's like it's been two years since someone has died, and so we no longer ask, how are you in your grief? And I think that often people want to be asked, not that they want to be thought of as victim of grief for longer, but they want their grief to be acknowledged for much longer than than it is. And so I majorly failed a friend at that. So I wanted you all to learn from my mistake. Like (laughs) after a certain amount of time, I was like, she's probably tired of talking about this. And instead she was like, I want to talk to you about how much I miss my mom all the time. It's the only thing I want to talk about. And so I think we also have to make space for that. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. It is now. So Rick. We're coming to the end of our show, and as we always do with every episode of the podcast, we end by offering a blessing to someone. Ariana, do you have a blessing for someone in this chapter? I do. I'm going to bless Cho Chang. There's this moment where she's walking through the Hogwarts Express with Marietta, and she looks and she sees Harry and she blushes. And I think it is so brave of her to accompany Marietta when Marietta has been publicly shamed and alienated. I think it's really beautiful of her and her friendship to have forgiven her and for choosing Marietta over Harry. She basically had to and she chose her best friend and I love her for that. And I think it is so hard to then have the judgment of everyone around you on your decision to do that. And I think it is none of Harry's business why Cho has forgiven Marietta and what's transpired and he is still judging her and she still feels embarrassed and she's doing it anyway. She's publicly standing with Marietta and I love her for that and so I'm blessing Cho. Thanks, Ariana. How about you, Vanessa? So I promised I was going to do this and I saved it to the last chapter. Does anybody have any opinions? I would like to offer the following blessing for Dolores Umbridge. 
Um, I would like to bless her for still having the twigs and leaves in her hair because I believe that Dumbledore thinks that he was the righteous one here. He went into the forest and got her, and she is being tended to in the hospital wing, and he gets to be like moral superiority, except that if, if you're actually going to take care of someone, you help restore their dignity as well. And this is not actually a point of resistance on Umbridge. If we want to change her, one way to change her would be by showing her a complete form of grace. And, and that includes wash, washing the feet of your enemies, right? And the other thing is the place to fight her is by having an article written about the terrible things she did in Hogwarts or talking to Fudge. Now that you've admitted all of this, you need to know that this woman was abusive. The point to fight her on is not to keep these twigs in her hair like a crown of thorns, right? Like that's not, we don't want to make a martyr out of her. And so I want to bless her for the trauma that she just went through. And I did it. I blessed Umbridge. Casper. It's <laughs> the scariest thing I've ever done on stage. <laughs> Um, we've talked a little bit about the ghosts, but my, my blessing is for Nearly Headless Nick. He has this very complicated relationship to a decision he made, a decision to not completely disappear, to, to become embodied in this ghostly form, this transparent form. And so my blessing is for anyone who, like Nick, is living on the edge of regret, where we feel like a decision which might once have been sweet has soured or with time has become empty of its early promise. And that for Nick, there is no solution. There is no ending. This is forever. And so for anyone who feels stuck in that moment, to feel at least like Nick, that he is accompanied by other ghosts and perhaps that he can use that experience and that all of us can use the experience of regret to share it with someone like Harry when they ask um, to try and help others at least make an informed decision. So my blessing is for, for Nick. Yeah. So friends, that is our show. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to hang out by the merch stand outside in just a little bit. We'd love to say hello. Come get a t-shirt, a hat, or some stickers. Um, next week, we're doing our series wrap-up of Order of the Phoenix. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions, executive produced by Ariana Nettleman with editing support from Ariana Martinez. We are part of the Night Vale Presents Network and we have special thanks for our tour manager, Meg Bashweiner. We would also like to offer a special thanks to John Green, to everybody here. To everybody here at the Claus Auditorium, Emily Cordes, Sarah Borglug, I should have practiced your name, Jim Myers, and of course, we want to thank, as always, we're running out of music, Maggie Needham, Danny Agan, Stephanie Falsell. I'm Casper Tekal. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. I'm Ariana Nettleman. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. The live show! Yeah.